Welcome to the Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton. Writing a book is a dream for many people, and in today's society, it has become easier and more important than ever. If you are an expert, speaker, coach, or an authority in your field, having a book is the new business card. It can increase your credibility, enhance your status, and make you the go-to person in your field opening doors and bringing a flood of opportunities straight to you. You can increase your fees and start choosing the clients you really want to work with. The Authors Podcast Show with Lisa Newton is designed to inspire, educate and inform you, both entrepreneur and individual, on how to write a book, as well as writer's tips and strategies on how to actually get that book written. On today's show, you learn more about how to write a book, including writing ideas, marketing, and how to succeed in getting a book written. Here we go with the author's podcast, and here is your host, Lisa Newton. Welcome to another episode of the author's podcast. Today, my special guest is Eric Deckers, who is the president of Pro Blog Service, a content marketing agency with clients throughout the United States. He's also the co-author of Branding Yourself, No Bullshit Social Media and The Owned Media Doctrine. Eric has been blogging since 1997 and a newspaper humour columnist since 1994. He has written several radio and stage plays and numerous business articles. Eric was the spring 2016 writer-in-residence at the Jack Kerouac House in Orlando, Florida, and now serves on their board of directors. So hopefully on the line, my very first international guest, I should have Eric Deckers. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? Very good. Okay, excellent. Tell us what part of the world are you in exactly in America then, Eric? I live in Orlando, Florida. Okay. Which I think everybody knows where Orlando, Florida is. I hope so. We get a, we get a lot of British people here, so a lot of people know where Orlando, Florida is. But we moved here two years ago from Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, home of the Indianapolis 500, where we lived for 10 years. Wow. Okay. You're the president of the Pro Blog Service. So give us a little bit of background. Tell us about that. We are a content marketing agency, which is really just a fancy way of saying ghost blogging. I'm now the sole owner, but we started out, there were three of us about eight years ago, and I have become the only owner. Yeah. And we write, keep saying we, it's me. It's all me. Uh, <laughs> I write blog posts for other companies that want to be found online. And once they're found, want to sound like experts. Okay. But they don't have the time or the resources or maybe the knowledge and skill to be able to write those blog posts on a regular basis. And so that's where I come in. And I interview the client since they're the subject matter expert and gather the information and then go away and write the articles and send them off for uh, approval. And once they, the client approves the articles, then I will publish them to their blog under their name. Okay. I found that oftentimes, I know with myself, when I've been trying to 
blog, I must admit. It's been difficult It's just to sit down sometimes and to actually write a blog. It's a funny thing because I find that sometimes you've got to write in short bursts I can find a bit difficult to have to come and say something new every day. I don't know if uh, you find that your clients potentially have that kind of issue. They maybe mean to write a blog, but never do. That's kind of how I find my clients. Those are the ones who they realize they want a blog, but they've got you know, work to do and they've got some marketing to do and they've got all these meetings to go to that they never actually have time to write one. So you know, they'll put it on their to-do list and there's eight things to get done and they got seven of them done. So guess what? You know, guess what they put off until tomorrow? And somebody like me can come in and take that off of their plate. They, you know, I talk to the client for literally an hour or less each month mm-hmm. and I've got enough material for the month. So rather than taking two or three hours to write one blog post, Uh, And that's how much you should be taking if you want it to be good. And doing that eight times, you talk to me for one hour and then you're done. Okay. Maybe in terms of blogging, what are the main benefits, would you say, to a business? And do you think small businesses or big businesses or, you know, who benefits most from writing a blog? What are the main benefits? Any business can benefit because one of the things that it helps is your search engine presence. Yeah. I know you're a bookkeeper. So if <laughs> if people are looking for bookkeepers, they're going to find the company or the person who writes a lot about bookkeeping on their website. Because Google looks for two things. They look for recency and frequency of change. So they want you to be updating your website, but they pay attention to how often do you do it? And when's the last time you did it? Yes. And so you could change it just by going in and updating your website. And I knew somebody who they actually made little minute changes every other day on their website. And pretty soon Google caught on that, hey, they're, they're making updates. This is somebody we should pay attention to. And they moved their website from somewhere in the 200s up to number two for their particular keywords. Wow over three or four months by just making tiny changes on their website. The better way to do this, of course, is with blogging. And if you publish one or two articles a week, Google sees that you're making these regular changes and they pay attention to that as well. Mm. But then the second benefit beyond that is the readers who find you, they're going to find all of this great information. The person changing their website they're not putting out anything new. They're just ranking higher. But the person who's blogging, the person who has bookkeeping questions, they are going to find all of this great information. And so, you know, you would write about bookkeeping and, and basically explain how to do it. Here's how you do your year-end taxes. Here's how you calculate your VAT or your quarterly taxes. Or here's how you calculate depreciation. And you can put out all this great information and somebody like me comes and reads it and I'm hopeless with numbers. <laughs> and I'm going to see that, well, I can't do it, but clearly Lisa knows what she's talking about because she's written dozens of articles about it. I'm just going to get her to do it. <laughs> and so that's where the real benefit comes in is you're proving your knowledge. You know, the, the big fancy term now is social proof. Yes. But it's basically establishing your credibility that you're saying, I can do this. I'm not just, I didn't just read a book and say I could do it. 
here's proof that I can do this. And so that's the, I think the benefit for the companies is that ultimate credibility builder. Right. Let's talk about how your books. One of the first books you wrote was the No Bullshit Social Media. Just the title of that. Talk me through the title. How did that come about? Well, that's actually the the third book I did. The guy I wrote Branding Yourself with, I had helped him write his book, Twitter Marketing for Dummies. And then we, a year later, decided to write Branding Yourself and pitched that to publisher Pearson. And they said, oh, that's great. We'll do that. Then I thought, after two books in two years, I'm going to take a break and just not do anything for a year at least book-wise. And instead, two weeks after my launch party, I texted a friend of mine, Jason Falls, and I said, hey, I've got an idea for a social media book. Do you want to write it with me? And he said, sure, but I get to pick the title. (laughs) And so Jason is a great guy, good friend. He's from Kentucky, and if you know people from Kentucky, that's where the American South sort of starts. And so Jason is this kind of loud, brash, southern gentleman Knowing, if you know Jason, knowing the title is not a surprise because it just fits his personality completely. You know, he he is a no bullshit kind of guy. (laughs) So when I pitched that to Pearson, they said, well, we like the title, but we're not so sure Barnes & Noble would like the title. That's our big bookstore chain here in the States. Mm. They said, so go do some research and see if Barnes & Noble is selling any books with bad words in the title. And then we can pitch it to them. Because if they weren't going to like it, we had to change the title. And so we go and we find Penn & Teller, their No Bullshit DVD series. They're a pair of magicians. We find the No Bullshit rule, not the No Bullshit, the No Asshole rule, which was a New York Times bestseller. And, you know, Barnes & Noble is selling these things gladly. We showed them and Pearson said to Barnes & Noble, well, we want to sell this book. And you guys have books with this word in the title. Mm can we do it? And Barnes and Noble said, are you kidding? We would love to do that. You will even front face the book for you. If you go into bookstores, some books are stacked. So the spines are facing out and a few books are stacked. So the face is facing out. Yes. And publishers pay for that. Oh, wow. That's not just a decorating Mm. trick that the bookstores do. They pay for that. And Barnes and Noble said, we will front face that book for you. And then what they ended up doing was even putting us on the new arrivals shelf. So as you walk into the store, it's one of the shelves as you first walk in. And and I've got a photo of one particular shelf where the book is at high level of an easily influenced Mm six-year-old. So that was a rather proud day for me when that came out. (laughs) My mom, not so much. (laughs) So for branding yourself... What's a top tip you would say, maybe, with when it comes to social media? What would you maybe, in a nutshell, well, we, advise? We talked about blogging. That's yes. always an important tip because that establishes you as the expert in whatever field you're in. But then I think being on a social network where your customers are likely to be, for me... Being a, a blogger and a writer, I will find my customers on LinkedIn. I won't necessarily find them on Facebook. But if I sold, oh, I don't know, if I if I was a real estate agent, 
my customers are more likely to be on Facebook, and so I should be over there being on Facebook. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. But then the other, mm. the other important thing is that wherever you are, your communication should have value. So it doesn't mean that you're giving away great information or you know showing people how to make money, but rather it, it provides value to other people. A writer provides value by entertaining. Stand-up comic provides value by making people laugh. You know, business consultant provides value by giving business advice. So whatever it is that you do, provide that value for other people on that social network. Yeah. Okay. Good tips, excellent, providing value. You are listening to the Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. those of you just tuning in i am talking to eric deckers who is the president of pro blog service which is a content marketing agency with clients throughout the united states he's the co-author of branding yourself no bullshit social media and the owned media doctrine just your co-author that you touched on how do you come together with co-author for example did you come up with an idea together how do you divide the content who's writing what how do you make sure it flows so that it sounds like one book if you know what i mean sure well in kyle's case he's the guy that i wrote branding yourself with and then i ghosted half of his twitter marketing for dummies book that was basically him needing help because his book was late right (laughs) that the twitter marketing book was late he was coming up on they gave him four months to write it And he thought he could knock it out in a few weeks. And (laughs) when he realized that he couldn't, he asked me for help. And so I agreed to help him. And we finished his book in a month. And we divided the labor by just essentially dividing the number of chapters in half. And I took half and he took half. And then he was going to run out of time. And so I did one more chapter than half of his own book. So I always tell people that because that's important to me. (laughs) (laughs) But then in the Branding Yourself book, because that covers a number of different topics, and we we talk about Twitter and LinkedIn and blogging and Facebook, and they each have their own chapter, we took the ones that we specialized in. I was better at blogging and Twitter, so I took those, and Kyle was better at Facebook and LinkedIn, so he took those. And then all the other chapters, we, you know, was what we had an interest. And we got lucky in that neither of us wanted to do the other person's chapter you know we okay we just happened to hit our own interests without fighting over a chapter right and so then we had deadlines imposed by the publisher that we had to have so many chapters done each month this time kyle had learned his lesson and got them all done in time (laughs) as did i but then to make everything sound consistent me being the you know the older more experienced writer i made kyle give me his chapters i went through and i kind of say i cleaned it up but i made it sound more like me it was uh it was a consistent sound consistent voice all through the book 
And then funnily enough, when I wrote No Bullshit Social Media with Jason, we didn't do that because Jason and I write in similar styles. But then he sort of panicked and thought, well, I'm writing a book, so I need to sound smart. And so he really smarted it up. And the publisher caught it and said, you guys sound like two different people writing this. You need to fix this. Mm. We ended up falling a month behind because we gave them our month chapters. And they said, no, no, do it again. And so we uh, had added a month to our total. Basically, I went in and I, I redid Jason's chapters and he redid mine. And then we shared, compared the results and we knew what voice we had to be at when we wrote the remaining chapters. Okay. Very interesting. And were you good friends with Jason prior to writing the book with him? How did you join Fairly good friends. We met because he, he lived in Louisville, which was about two hours from me. And he would come up to Indianapolis to speak. And he, Jason's a well-known uh, person in the United States about social media. He's one of the leading voices, uh, one of the leading experts of social media marketing. And I was lucky enough to get to know him as that was taking off for him uh, when he would come up to Indy and speak. And then I would find an excuse to go down to Louisville and we would hang out for you know a few hours. So we were we were becoming friends when I had the idea for the book. We had known each other professionally. We had seen each other's work, read each other's writing. So we both knew that we could help the other person accomplish what they wanted. Right. You read his work prior to sort of getting almost it's a business deal, really, isn't it? For mm-hmm. It word. really is. It's a it's a called a pop up company. We yeah. ran a company for four months, and the product was the book. Yes. The reason I ask you this is because there there are people out there that are thinking of writing, and they might know someone else who might write with them. But then you know, there's always issues sometimes that come along. Some people aren't as motivated, aren't as dedicated, you've done your bit, they've not done their bit. So it's it's just interesting to know um, how well perhaps one should know someone prior to, you know, maybe coming up with an agreement like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it was more uh, my personality type and Jason's personality type fit. Same thing with Kyle. I had known Kyle for over a year by that time and we were pretty good friends and we knew the personality would fit. But I've also had the the attitude that I would rather lose money than lose a friend. Right. And so if things were to go south, mm. we both agreed that we would jump off the project rather than damage the friendship. Oh, that's fair enough. Okay. You've been writing for some time then, just, you know, in terms of your column um, in the newspaper and blogging since 1997 I mean that's a long time I think it was in around about that time I got my first email address can you remember life back in because I can't remember what year it was that I heard of blogging but I don't think it was before necessarily the year 2000 I can't quite think back that far but uh, <laughs> how was well, what I was changed what years. I was doing back in 97, I was I had been writing a newspaper humor column for a few years and everyone had a website. In fact, that, you know, I worked for my father-in-law and we had a website and I was in charge of it. And I, I saw how easy, relatively easy it was to make changes to pages. Mm. You know, you, you make a, 
you've got your page on your computer, you make a few changes, you add some new information, and then you upload it, and it replaces what you just had. And I thought, well, I could do that with my columns. And so I created my own website and uploaded pages, and then every Friday morning I would take the column that I had sent off the night before, send it to my uh, newspaper publishers, and then I would put it on my blog the next morning. And it would take about an hour because I had to hand code everything and, and do all the formatting and then upload it. And I missed it something, so I'd have to fix it and upload it again. Uh, it was around the year 2000 that I heard about blogging. But I'd been doing it this way for three years, and I thought, well, that's, you know, somebody, I think it was a radio show that they talked about blogging. Mm-hmm. And I heard it, and I thought, well, that's stupid. That <laughs> That's too easy. You know, this is this is hard work. You know, we, we work with our hands, and we should just do it the right, proper way. You know, it's like the, the guy who likes swinging an axe, hearing about a chainsaw, and thinking, that's dumb. Mm-hmm. And so for another three years... I continued doing what I was doing, taking an hour just to upload the thing that I had spent four hours writing the night before. And then in 2003, somebody actually showed me how that worked. And they said, look, it's just like sending an email. You put your content into this little box, and then you, instead of hitting send, you hit publish, and you're done. And I I thought, well, God, that's, that's so stupid what I've been doing for the last six years. When I could have done this, it took literally five minutes to upload a a blog post and not one hour. And I got my first blog on Blogspot. In fact, I still have it. That's where my humor blog is still published. (laughs) And I've been doing it ever since. Okay. Where can people find your blog, though, now? Would it be on your website? If you go to ericdeckers.com, and that's E-R-I-K-D-E-C-K-E-R-S.com, that forwards right to my humor site. Okay. And then problogservice.com, that's my work site. And I write about writing and social media and content marketing. Right. And seeing as you go back so far, back to, say, I don't know, 1997, do you ever go back and read any of your work or your old blog posts or anything like that? If I ever need a reprint for a column because I'm going to take a week off, maybe I'm sick or I'm on vacation... I'll pull something from 2003, mm. and I have to rework it anyway. I try not to go back much beyond the year 2000 because the work is just it's so bad. <laughs> I don't even like it. It's embarrassing to read. Oh, wow. Especially the first 100 humor columns I did, I won't even touch them because they're just – I read one once five years ago, and it's like, oh, my God, this got seen in public. <laughs> I hope those newspapers don't exist anymore, that nobody has a copy because they're just awful. Oh, no. That leads me on to one of the, the major questions I always have, which is you are a writer, you are a blogger, but do you feel that everyone can write? And obviously you yourself, you've improved over the years, definitely. But would you say everyone can write? That's one of those questions that I'm torn on. You know, I, I like to be an egalitarian and say, yes, everybody can write. I mean, everybody does write in, in some form or another. You know, we send emails and we send text and, and that's writing. Yes, everybody can string words together and make sentences. But then part of me wants to be elitist about it, at least when somebody who is not a writer critiques my work. And then I think, well, what, 
what do you know? <laughs> You're not a writer. And so then I get very protective about the title. But, you know, 95% of the time, I'm, I believe that, yes, everybody could write, even if you can't spell right. And even if you don't fully grasp grammar and punctuation, you make mistakes, that's okay. You'll learn how to do it. But if you've got an inkling of telling a story, then you can be a writer. You can, you know, pen and paper, computer, a typewriter. I own two typewriters that I still use. Oh. You know, a leather-bound notebook and an ink pen. You know, whatever you want to do, write stuff down. And sure, it's going to be terrible at first. My first 100 columns were just dead awful. But you get better the more you do it. If you write every day and you stick with it and you read a lot, you're going to get better. And then, yes, you'll be a writer. Are you a fan of actually writing with a pen or do you like to type straight onto the page? It depends. Mostly I, I love computers because I type really fast and so my brain works pretty quick and my fingers can keep up. But when I'm typing on a typewriter or writing in a notebook, it forces my brain to slow down. Mm. And then I can't think ahead and race to keep up. Then it's like... I have to stop my brain and finish writing what I was writing, mm. and then I can think about the next thing. It's sort of like you know if you if you work out and exercise and you do one thing, and then you switch to a whole different form of exercise and work a different set of muscles. That's what the typewriter and the notebook do for me. Is it forces me to sit down and to contemplate what I'm about to say next, because it's much more difficult to fix. Mm it uses a whole different set of writing muscles. And so I switch it up just for that reason. Okay, fair enough. That's a good point. Because you write your newspaper columns, my question is, in terms of the material for your column, how do you find inspiration for your material? A lot of it just sort of depends on... on current events on something that's happening to me personally mm. on you know something I might see in the news mm. the, the column I wrote last night was about the 12 days of Christmas and there's a, a bank here in the United States called PNC and every year for the last 33 years they have calculated how much would it cost to buy each item in the 12 days of Christmas and I think this year's total was like 34, almost $35,000 wow. US dollars to buy everything. And I said, that's crazy. That's way too much. We're going to do an entrepreneur's Christmas. You know, me being an entrepreneur, I, we're going to do this way under budget. It's going to be just as good. And we're going to find everything. And so I went online and did actual research and compared it to like what PNC had spent. They spent, you know, a pretend spent, yeah. but they spent $13,000 on swans. Okay. And I went to, I think it was, I can't remember which website, birdsnow.com. <laughs> I could buy a pair of swans for $800. And <laughs> so buy three pair. And then there was a guy selling single swans in Tennessee. I actually put this in the column. There's a guy in Tennessee selling a single swan for $650. So for $3,050, I got seven swans, you know, that's way under $13,000. Since I live, you know, fairly close to Disney and we have friends who are in entertainment at Disney, I, I emailed one of my friends and I said, you're a dancer at Disney. How much do dancers get paid 
if hypothetically could you get nine women and ten men to dance at just an event? And she said, oh, yeah, the, easily we could put that together. And I calculated we were going to you know, offer a gig rate of $50 a day and two passes through the craft table. And, you know, because I think PNC was paying another $13,000 for dancers. And here I got it done for less than 1000 And I had a little fun with that. A few weeks ago, you might appreciate this, the different column, British fishermen fishing off one of the docks, I think, I want to say down near Brighton, accidentally almost died from swallowing a Dover sole. Ooh, what's a Dover sole? It's uh, it's the little flat fish. Oh, okay. That you know they they lay on the bottom and the, and their one eye migrates up to the top of their head, and he was pretending to you know he held it over his mouth, leaned his head back and held it over his mouth so his friend could take a picture because they were laughing at how small the fish was. Well, it wriggled out of his grasp and shot straight down his throat. Oh my! Goodness. And he started choking on it, and they had to get a paramedic. And his friends were doing uh, CPR on him, and that's what saved his life. The paramedic managed to pull it out, and it saved him because he he had died. His heart had stopped. Oh and my he gosh! Had, he, I wrote my column about. I started it out with an embarrassing story about myself, and said I have done some embarrassing things over the years. It's my go-to move as a dad, <laughs> but I have never almost died from embarrassing myself. And then I told the story about the the guy swallowing the fish, almost swallowing the fish. Oh, God. You know, I look for inspiration anywhere, uh, something my family does, a memory that, you know, I have of when I was a kid or something in the news. Mm. These are all useful things because sometimes people get writer's block and they'll sit there staring at a blank page or at the wall or at the screen and they just don't know, just have no ideas anecdotes, drawing on personal experience, um, something that's topical, Christmas is coming up, that sort of thing. These all give you great ideas. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. Please do subscribe to, like and share this channel. So if you're just tuning in, I am talking to Eric Deckers, who is the president of ProBlog Service, a content marketing agency with clients throughout the United States. He's the co-author of several books about branding yourself, the owned media doctrine, and has Ghost co-authored Twitter Marketing for Dummies. For those that don't know what ghost writing is, can you give us an explanation of what that means? Does it mean that your name gets to be in the book or are you supposed to be completely in the background? A true ghost writer is completely in the background. And so when it comes to like my work, my work blogs, I don't put my name on it at all. I don't take any credit. Everything is done under the client's name. Right. But the kind of writing I do, uh, because now my, my sideline is to write books right. with other people. You know, my so if, experience, if someone had a book idea and wanted to come to you, would you be open to that? <laughs> I, I would, Just asking sure. for the people who probably think, ooh, okay. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But there, after writing Twitter marketing for dummies with Kyle and, and not getting credit, it just kind of burned. No. I didn't, And it wasn't Kyle's fault. It, you know, we, I totally blame the publisher for refusing to put me on the contract. Not that I'm bitter. But... 
I said, I don't ever want that to happen to me again. So anytime I ghost a book, I get co-author credit. Right. And so I always make sure I get paid uh, out of, you know, I get paid a fee rather than the royalties and I get a creative credit. If the book is a smashing success and the, and the lead author gets a million dollars in royalties, I'll probably rethink that strategy, but that's, they get all the royalties. And then if, it doesn't go anywhere, and they don't even publish it. And I had a, a CEO I worked with, and he, we did that, and he never published the book. I still got paid. But then my name goes second as the, as the co-author. Right. Or in uh, – I also call it the with uh, because you get a lot of famous people who write a book with somebody. The with is always the writer, and the lead author, the celebrity – is the person who did the thing worth writing about. Yeah. I think that's how Donald Trump wrote The Art of the Deal, I believe. Yeah. I think he had a real ghostwriter. Like, the guy didn't put his name on the book, although he did out himself later as that author when, when the campaign started. Yeah. And having written so much, have you ever found that your work has been plagiarised at all? Oh, sure. Especially my humour columns. Yeah. I've been... Three times it's happened. The last two times happened within about two months of each other. Back in the early 2000s, I had a Canadian editor at a small weekly paper take one of my columns and, and rewrite it a tiny bit and use it as his. And then a few years ago, I had a, an American editor. <clears throat> they were all editors. An American editor of a small, small town weekly newspaper take a couple of my columns and then I had a, a guy who was the editor and publisher of another Canadian newspaper out in Alberta take some of my columns. The first guy only did it once ever, and I just happened to catch him. The other two guys did it to several of us for at least a year. My big takeaway was that uh, so far, Canada leads in plagiarizing me two to one. <laughs> and so I'm hoping the Americans can mount a big comeback and somebody will rip me off by the year's end. <laughs> I, I don't actually hope that. That's, that was uh-huh. kind of terrible to, to go through and see that, you know. And do they literally, like, copy what you say word for word? Oh, pretty much. Copy and paste, and they'll make some minor changes. Wow. But, you know, all you have to do is do a Google search for a unique phrase from yeah. one of your pieces, put it in quote marks in Google, and that tells Google, look for exactly this phrase. And it will find all the instances where that phrase has been used. And that's how I caught the first guy, just completely by accident. And then somebody else did that the other two times and, and found those those guys. It was funny. For each, each instance of plagiarism, mm. these last two times, I knew a few of the other writers, because they're all human writers, I knew a few of them in each case. But I was the only one who had that happen on a repeat right like imagine a venn diagram you must be good (laughs) that's that's how i took it i mean the one guy in the united states he won an award from the north dakota press association for his column writing and and each of us were secretly hoping i hope it was me Mm. i hope my column won the award it was a guy from texas and the rest of us the the other six of us were all like oh Was there any recourse, any redress? Did they take it down? Did they credit it to you? In, let's see, in the guy in the United States, 
he quit his job before his publisher could fire him. The guy in Canada who was the publisher, he stepped down as the publisher, but still maintains ownership of the paper. He stepped down as the president of his town's chamber of commerce, and his newspaper was kicked out of the Alberta Press Association or Alberta Press Council for a year. Uh, one of the writers, uh, a friend of mine from Georgia, she had been ripped off the most by the guy in Minnesota, and so they paid her. She didn't disclose how much they paid, but I know she got a pretty decent rate. Yeah, because basically they're taking your material whereby they would have to pay for that. This is the thing. And there are people out there who think that, oh, you know, you can't make a living out of being a writer, but you know that that's not true. But what I have found over the years is if you want to make money as a writer, you do it putting somebody else's name on it. That's where ghostwriting comes in. Like I, I write fiction, and that's you know when I went to the Kerouac house as the writer in residence, I, I went there on the strength of a novel I was working on. Mm-hmm. But you know if I ever get it published, I'm not going to make an annual salary off of that. And I don't, you know, I make $5 per newspaper column that I write for from one newspaper. Like, I have 10 that publish me. One pays me. The other nine, I just do it because I love it. I build that newspaper once a year <laughs> because it's just easier to just send one invoice at the end of the year rather than, you know, one every every month. So we do it because we love it. And that's what's frustrating about being plagiarized is, you know, here's an editor who's who gets a salary based on the work he produces. Yes. And the work he produced was mine. And here's a publisher who, you know, gets paid based on the number of ads he sells based on the strength of the content that appears in his newspaper. And so he got he sold ads and made money based on the strength of my work and all these other people's work. And we got none of it. Yeah. And even after it was said and done, unless we wanted to sue, we got none of it. And there wasn't enough to try to sue. Yeah. You know, it was like, it could have maybe gotten $2,000. Yeah. And the lawyer would have cost 4000 So, <laughs> not worth it. Yeah. Do you think there's a lot of it that goes on? I think a lot of it happens. Some of it's unintentional. Mm. Some of it's intentional. I don't think... Like both these guys, they said, I ran out of time and I needed something. I had a deadline and I couldn't get it finished. And so it was so easy to just copy and paste. And I thought I'd never get found out. Yeah. And then it was easier the second time I did it. They both said that. In fact, mm. the, the, the young guy in Canada several years ago said the same thing. I was out of time. Mm. It's done intentionally, but I don't think it's done maliciously. And then you get people who don't understand copyright law. Right. And they think it's on the internet. That that means it's free to take. Yes. This is the thing. In terms of, you do write a lot. Do you read a lot as well? Or are you an avid reader? I, mean, uh, I tend to be. writing fiction books. Do you like writing, reading fiction books? I do. That's, that's my, I write nonfiction almost primarily, but I love reading fiction. Mm. Believe it or not, I love British murder mysteries. <laughs> like what, Sherlock Holmes or Miss Marple or... <laughs> M.C. Beaton's Hamish Macbeth and Agatha Raisin and, oh gosh, P.D. James oh, yes. and Carolyn Graham and 
Basically, if the BBC or ITV has done a television series about it, I have read the books. Oh, wow. Okay. Excellent. And then they ship them all over here, and we can get them on Netflix and on BBC America. Oh, okay. Excellent. Do you have a favorite book of all time out of those? My most favorite book of all time is Catch-22. I read that when I was 16, probably should not have, a little salty. <laughs> but I read that when I was 16, and I loved it so much, I thought, I want to do this. I want to write, and I want to be funny, and I want to entertain people and make them think about things. And then I just sort of stopped. Like, I thought that, and then I didn't do anything about it except write college papers, and then I went to work for my college newspaper, never thinking I was doing that thing I said I wanted to do, mm. and never realizing I was even a good writer. Mm. So Catch-22, what is that? Is it a, like a story, or is it anecdotes? It's what kind a, of format does that take? It's a novel, it's a satirical novel set in Italy during World War II, written by a man named Joseph Heller, He's written other books, but they didn't do nearly as well as Catch-22 did. It's considered an American classic, 20th century classic. And a lot of it published in the 70s during the Vietnam War and became an instant favorite of the soldiers because it's it was just sort of about the, the lunacy and the stupidity of war because the people who were who were for it were stupid lunatics. <laughs> you know, you had these generals who would send the main character squadron, Yossarian, his name is Yossarian, he was a bomber in an air squadron, they would send them out on a mission because the general needed more missions to be flown. Mm. And then, you know, you had to fly a certain number of missions and then you were rotated out and you could go home, you were done. And the general of this particular division would keep raising the number of missions by five. You know, it was 30, now it's 35, now it's 40. And, and you know, these are deadly missions. You can die on just a single mission, and, and they've got to go fly, you know, 60, 65. And, and the number keeps climbing because the general wants to look good. And so it's just the main character normal guy it's a fish it's almost a fish out of the water story he's a normal guy in an insane situation and this is how he tries to deal with it by being more insane than the people around him okay so catch 22 for those of you that if that sounds like something up your street so you said it was satirical yes satirical humor would you say you've got a funny sense of humor eric a dry sense of humor you must have to be a little bit strange or you know <laughs> oh, absolutely. way of seeing things differently to be able to write humor columns <laughs> yeah i've i've got a kind of a warped sense of humor that's the word i was looking and generally like in my family my kids are all older you know 15 17 and 21 and i'm the immature one in the family you know they're the ones telling me not to do things and not to say certain things and and so i just because i like to laugh you know i'm i'm a happy person I find the humor enjoying things that helps me look at weird situations and make fun of them, you know, because my first goal is to make myself laugh. And then my second goal is to make the other people around me laugh. Mm. 
anything I can look at, whether it's, you know, a guy almost dying because he accidentally swallowed a fish or, you know, how much do the 12 days of Christmas cost and, and thinking I can do better. It's, it's how can I make myself laugh in that situation? And then whatever made me laugh, I write it down. You were listening to the Authors Podcast with me, your host, Lisa Newton. You can email me, lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And remember, we have the Inner Circle, which is for writers just like you. And you can join us at writerbook.net. If you're just tuning in, I am talking to Eric Deckers, who's the president of Pro Blog Service, which is a content marketing agency with clients throughout the United States. So if you're thinking of writing a blog and you're struggling for content, as you can see, speaking to Eric today, Eric's got plenty of content. He's the co-author of Branding Yourself, No Bullshit Social Media and The Owned Media Doctrine. Eric's been blogging since 1997 and a newspaper humour columnist since 1994. So the Owned Media Doctrine then, Eric, tell me about that book. That was uh, written with another friend, Talby Jackson, and he had started a company called Radius, and they did content marketing, basically newsroom-style content marketing for large enterprise corporations, mm. you know, big companies that have hundreds of people, and their marketing department might want to do content marketing, but they don't want to write something one or two times a week. They want to write two or three or four posts a day. Right. Talby used to work in, I believe it was television news. And so he had created this company that worked like a newsroom. You meet in the morning, you come up with story ideas, you've got your first stories done by noon, you've got your second stories done by three, and you've got a whole crew putting out that content. And so we wrote a book for those CMOs and vice presidents of marketing on how to come up with that department. And Tali, it was, it was sort of what I was describing earlier with the, with the celebrities and their co-authors. Talby gave me all of the information. I wrote it all down. And then he went back through and put it back in his voice. And we came up with that book. And that wow. took about eight months. Okay, so for those people who want to put a content media sort of department or plan or strategy into place. Correct. Okay. You know, we've talked about marketing a little bit. How do you go about marketing your books? It starts with having a decent social network. I don't mean the tool. I mean having a decent network of people that I'm connected with. So I've got, you know, large networks on LinkedIn, on Twitter and on Facebook that I've built up since literally since 2007 when I started using social media. And because I always try to provide that value to people, it's easy then to go in and occasionally put out messages that says, Hey, my new book's out. Hey, you know, my friend Dave is in one of the case studies in the book or I think one of the case studies is uh, Paul from Haggard Hawks. I think he's Scottish, and it's a uh, uh, a language, an old English language Twitter account that he runs. So I'll put that out on Twitter, and then he'll retweet that because he's in it. But then I've got thousands of people who are also seeing that. And because I'm not only ever just shouting, buy my book, buy my book, mm. 
then I don't come off as a TV advert, you know, that we all yes. ignore. It's, oh, my friend Eric has a book out, or oh, that guy who helped me, or oh, that guy who writes those articles has a book out. I do that, and I'll post once every few days. I maybe should do more, but I don't want to be that guy. But every few days, I've got some message somewhere saying, hey, my book is out. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's very important. Like you say, you know, if you can drop it into the conversation, it's better than just constantly saying, my new book, my new book, my new book. <laughs> exactly. What would you say to people, though, who were maybe sitting at home and they're like, gosh, you know, now he wants me to do tweeting and blogging or whatever else. And I just haven't got time, you know, I haven't got time to write my book, let alone do all of these things that come with it. What would you say to someone like that? Now, how do you find the time to write as much as you do? Well, I'm lucky in the sense that it's my job. Mm. It's also, and you know, we talked earlier, it's only me at this agency. Mm. I keep it that way on purpose. I try to run a, a lifestyle job where I make enough to support my family, but I don't have to grow an agency and have lots of people. And so that gives me a lot of time. Mm. So if I can you know, work late at night and get work done to free myself up during the day, that helps. And I, I realize I'm sort of an, an unusual situation. Not everybody gets to do that. But then there are, you know, like when I'm working on the book, I, I don't have time to always be writing a book. Mm. So I have to block out basically a section of my life where that's what I'm going to work on. I'm not going to watch TV and I'm not going to go out and I'm going to dedicate several hours at night when I would be doing something else to focusing on the book. And so, you know, from eight o'clock until midnight, I might be working. Right. But because I can get a lot done in four hours, I don't have to do that every night for six months. Yeah. But for other people, it might be getting up an hour early and sitting down and writing. And that's yeah. how John Grisham did it. John Grisham's a, a famous American writer who started out because he was a lawyer at the time, he would get up an hour early and write in his office every day. And then he would start his work day and he wrote his first two books that way. Mm. So, you know, that's an option or take a notebook and pen with you and write over lunch at your desk or at a, at a local coffee shop. Or you know, there's always time to do something, even if it's just 10 minutes. Yes, I agree. The only thing I find is that if I do do that, I get so engrossed that I, I couldn't just do it in little short bursts. I've got to really, you know, lock myself away for a couple of hours at a time. But like you say, you know, you can get a lot done in up to four hours, you know, with concentrated effort and not mm -hmm. just, you know, getting yourself distracted with Facebook and other <laughs> things that you could put on and not actually get any work done. Yes, and, and I'm great at getting distracted by those. <laughs> when it comes to, if, if someone's out there thinking, you know, I would love for... Eric, his team, you know, to help me out with my blogs with, you know, in terms of what you do with the pro blog service. If, say if I was thinking of using that as a service, would I have to give you like things to blog about or how does that work? Do you ask me what I want the blog to be about? How does that work? A lot of it depends on the client. Some mm. of them come up with the topics, but most of them let me come up with the topics. They tend to be in industries that I'm not an expert in. But what they don't realize is their clients aren't experts in those industries either. Either, that's right. 
So I ask questions I want to know the answer to. Yes. And then I sort of assume that these are the same questions that other people want to know the answer to. And, you know, and so I've had a few clients when I ask that first basic question, you know, why, why is this even important? Or what does this do? And they say, oh, everybody knows that. Mm. And I say, true, but just, you know, let me do this. We should build that base in case one or two people don't know this. And then what we find is that first article of, of uh, that very basic information is the most visited page on their blog. Yeah. It's like, well, clearly not everybody knew. So we try to educate the clients as we go along. And we'll ask that basic question, you know, what is bookkeeping? And then what is VAT tax? Because that's a little more complicated. And then can I declare my VAT uh, or, you know, can I avoid paying VAT on capital, you know, capital expenditures or whatever? I don't know, British tax law. But you get more and more complicated in your question because if that person who knows nothing about bookkeeping sees that first article and now they understand what you said and then they see the second article that teaches them a little more, I try to write to that person. Mm. And it's very true. And I think that also if you're writing particularly how-to books as well, it's I find that thinking about the questions that people always have in their mind are also good chapter headings as well. So you can elaborate on all of those points and it's always a good place to start. What is it that people want to know? Not what you want to tell them, but what would they really like to know? Exactly. Uh, one thing I tell people is uh, look in your email, especially the email that you've sent, look for the phrase, how do I, or why should I? Yeah. And chances are you've answered those questions so take the answer, flesh it out a little bit more, you know, get it up to about 300 or more words and publish that. Yes, that's a very good point. So just talk us through, Eric, coming to the end now, how did you find your publisher? Because you mentioned a publisher and you said it with such ease that I thought, gosh, at the time, like, I must come back to that question. Like, how did you find <laughs> your publisher? Because I know a lot of people sitting there, oh, when he just said a publisher, you know, like, was it networking? How did you come across your publisher? How did you find them, you know? It absolutely was networking. So the first book, Twitter Marketing for Dummies, was done through Wiley. And they had an office in Indianapolis. They're, they're based in New York, but they had an office in Indianapolis. And in fact, the Dummies series is published and produced in Indianapolis. So if you've ever read the, any of the four Dummies books. I have. I have they all come from Indianapolis, Indiana. But Pearson, which at the time was one of the largest publishers in the world because they own a lot of imprints and, and small publishing houses, uh, their biz tech arm was in Indianapolis as well, still is. Uh, it's called Q, Q-U-E, Q Biz Tech. And Kyle knew a guy who worked there. And Kyle, in fact, helped this guy find a job that was going to take him away from the city, move out to San Francisco. And so in a way, he owed him a little favor. And, and Kyle and I decided that when we wanted to do branding yourself, we didn't want Wiley to have it. And they had to write a first refusal on Kyle's next book. And so we didn't want him to have it. So we pitched a book that had three chapters that were not about technology at all. And Wiley said, oh, we don't want that book, which freed us up to pitch it to someone else. And Kyle asked Brandon, hey, can you put me in front of your boss? 
she agreed to meet with us and we pitched her the book and she liked it enough. And this was early on when there weren't that many social media books. Yeah. You know, this is 2010 and there were only a couple dozen social media books. Not like the 700 we have now. <laughs> Q was just jumping onto this social media publishing bandwagon and we happened to be in the right place at the right time. Even so, there were questions like, they're in Indianapolis. They're not from New York or Boston. How smart could they be? Catherine even looked at our, our Wiley book and said it's full of, you know, it's got, not full of, but it's got typos in it. How, you know, how good are they? And Brandon said, well, it is Wiley. And so, and he said that I'm not disparaging Wiley, but, you know, they had a professional rivalry. You know, it's like, you know, how good could they be? They're the other company. And she said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> So he kind of championed on our behalf that, look, these guys are well-known in the field. Just because they're from Indianapolis, they had to be from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, not everyone can live in New York. Yeah, if we'd been from Boston or New York, we'd have magically been geniuses. <laughs> but because we had chose not to live there, it's like some, something must be wrong with them. <laughs> so it helped that we had somebody inside championing the book for us. Mm. But... But the most important thing was just getting that initial contact, contact. through branding. Yes. And so, you know, for people, you know, yeah, I lucked into it. I realized that. But there are writers' conferences where publishers show up mm. and agents show up and they have pitch sessions. And I have been to enough writers' conferences and seen people get book deals because they met an agent at that conference, pitched them the book. The agent said, great, we'll sign you. And they go out and, and push the book to their publishing contacts. That's the easiest way to go about it. Mm. And so you, know, you, need, you need at least half a manuscript done when you meet with a person. And it's better to have a full manuscript done, at least if you're in the fiction world. In the nonfiction world, they have forms on websites that you just send in a proposal and they'll evaluate it. But in the fiction world, it's all done with agents. And uh, go to a writer's conference, make sure your story is top-notch, make sure your elevator pitch for the book is, is polished, pitch them the idea, they'll ask to read the manuscript, make sure it's awesome, they'll sign you, and they will sell the manuscript. Okay, excellent. How do you feel about the air of snobbery, though? Because some people might think, oh, well, you know, that sounds great, but I'm just going to self-publish, for example. Like, what do you think about that? Sometimes there can be a bit of snobbery around there. Or even it between, you know, publishers. I love the idea of self-publishing. Mm. And I think it's great because you get to keep more of your money. Yeah. You know, you, if you sell a book for $10... If you self-publish, you get seven or eight. Yeah. If if the publisher publishes it, you know my book is going to sell for thirty dollars, and I will get maybe two dollars of that. Yeah. So I'm all for self-publishing until it's my book, and then I want it to be real published. <laughs> I call it big boy publishing. You know, I want it to be traditionally published because they can get it in bookstores, and right. self-published books can't, and so it's. I'm torn. I know that I could, you know, if I could sell thousands of books just as easily as, as uh, Pearson can, because I still have to do the promotion either way, I could make more money. 
But I want the, the sort of that credibility, that wow factor of being in Barnes and Noble. So I, I have books in the works sort of, you know, half done and they've been half done on my computer for a few years that I want to self publish. I just never have the time to, they're not a, a top priority, but I, I fully believe in and I fully support self publishing because it's a great way for people to get their work out there and to yeah. get it into the hands of other readers. Yeah. And I think it's important, um, we're living in a global environment for as many people as possible, really, to come into contact with your work. But, you know, that said, has any of your work been translated or turned into audio? It's been, no bullshit has been translated into, I believe, Spanish and German, Thai. (laughs) They published it in Thailand and they published it in Poland. Okay. Branding Yourself has been turned into Spanish, French, German, and Japanese, which I never got. You know, that's a that's a whole society based on harmony and fitting in. And here's a book about how to stand out and be yourself. <laughs> it's like, I, I could have told you that's not going to sell well. <laughs> but apparently it did okay. And so I actually have copies of those translations. Like I have a Japanese version of Branding Yourself and a Thai version of No Bullshit on my shelves. And, and uh I'm actually almost as proud of that as just getting the book done. I never get the audio rights for these books. That's one thing that Pearson holds on to. They won't do audio versions of the book, but they won't let me do audio versions of the book either because I would love to get Lynn Ferguson to be the voice on one of my books. Uh, I'm a big fan of Lynn's. I was a fan of her brother's. But Lynn is also, uh, she's a, a professional storyteller now in uh, Los Angeles, and she's in the book. She and her husband, Mark, are one of the case studies on uh, YouTube videos. You'd love for Lynn to be the voice of the book, but you said the publishing rights for the audio is with Pearson. Yes. This is one, going back to that question about self-published, you own all your rights. In my case, the publisher owns a lot of my rights. You know, if, if somebody ever wants to make a movie about personal branding, I don't think I own the movie rights. If we wanted an audio book, they own the audio rights. Right. And so they get to decide whether it's done or not, who's the voice of it. Correct. Yeah. I might have a little bit of input on who, but they would definitely decide whether they wanted to have it done or not. And it's always been not. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, well, that's interesting, though. These things are interesting because these things that people need to be aware of when making their decisions and looking into things. So some people think that, okay, you can have a book with one place, but, you know, you can do the audio book elsewhere, but the text, the material is what it is. Whoever has bought the book rights kind of includes that in their contract to have all the rest of the rights as well. Exactly. Right. What do you think is the best thing, just drawing to a close now, just to leave us on a happy note, the best thing about being an author? Oh, (laughs) there's a lot of of different ways I can go with that. I mean, just being a writer in general, being a professional writer, I enjoy the look of people's face when I say I'm a writer because they all go, ooh. Because mm. it's like everybody's dreamed of being yes. a writer at some point or another. Yes. And yes, when I say I'm a professional writer and, you know, I support my family that way, they go, ooh, <laughs> that's cool. But really, it's, I think the best thing, being an author, being a writer, is 
you know, going back to when I was 16 and I said, I want to do that. I didn't know that you could make a living doing this. And so, you know, writing is the thing I love to do the most. It's my day job. It's my side job. It's my hobby. It's all three things. I don't get out much, but that's, I really love to do that. And so to be able to raise a family, provide for them by doing the thing I love, not many people get to do that. You know, the only thing that could be better about this is if I was writing for a sitcom. It's sort of, you know, my dream is to write for a TV comedy, but I'm doing, you know, I'm very pleased with what I do because it's absolutely what I've always wanted to do. Mm. And you've written several radio and stage plays already. Who knows? I had a Canadian troupe produce six of my plays. Excellent. I used to listen to BBC radio plays quite a lot. And again, I want to do that. So far, I've never had the BBC come knocking up. How do you tune into the BBC? Do you listen on the internet? Now I can, but back then it was tapes. Oh. Tapes and, yeah, like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Lord of the Rings. And then just going to my library and, and somebody would have produced a BBC audio and sold it in the States. Yeah. Gosh. What would you say is the worst thing about being a writer? Rejection. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no question. Being told no because... And this, and, and people are afraid of it, and you just have to get over it. You know, tell you what, easiest way to get over rejection uh, as a writer is to go into phone sales. <laughs> yes. Being told twenty no twenty times a day, that's going to harden your soul pretty quick. Yeah. But just as you know, as writers, we put ourselves into whatever it is that we do, and when somebody says no, I don't want that, it feels like they're saying no, you are not good enough. Yes. It stings. Even after thirty years, it still stings. Yes. That's true. For some people, that's what actually stops them from actually getting started. The idea that someone might read what they've written and, you know, criticise the language or the writing or say that, you know, oh, that wasn't very good. And that really is what stops them. It's what puts them off. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's hard. But... You know, I got rejected for something a few weeks ago, and I got up the next day, and I was still alive. <laughs> uh, I didn't die from it. So, it, yeah, it's going to sting, but, you know, hmm. we get rejected all the time in life. You know, you ask somebody out, or you apply for a job, or you try to get a reservation at a restaurant. You're told no all the time, and, and life still goes on. So That's writing isn't any different. That's very true. And sometimes people do recognize you for, for your writing efforts. Have you won any prizes or got on any bestsellers list or anything like that? No bestsellers list yet. I did, back in 2005, one of my stage plays got a, uh, an award for best comedy for the Indiana Theater Works. And so I used to, for years, made the joke that I was one of the 50 funniest playwrights in the United States. Yeah case every state did one, then statistically I was one of 50. <laughs> but uh, no one else saw that. No, they didn't. <laughs> the Hoosier State Press Association, people from Indiana are called Hoosiers. And the Hoosier State Press Association is having their award banquet in a few weeks. And my publisher, newspaper publishers, told me that my columns are going to win an award there. We just don't know if it's like first, second, or third place for best column. Wow. 
they they say that because uh, you know they tell you that in advance because dinner is eighty bucks a ticket. <laughs> Yeah, they want you to be there. <laughs> you're not going to show up just in case you win something and find out that you got 12th. You know, you're going to you're going to come if you know you're going to get an award. Well, I live a thousand miles away, so I can't make it, but my publisher will be there. Mm. Yeah. So in a few weeks, I will know what place I got. Okay, so you're one to watch then, Eric. We better keep our eye on you then. Let's just do your social media accounts then so to be able to tweet eric deckers you can tweet him at e deckers eric is on instagram and it's instagram.com forward slash eric deckers and eric is spelt e-r-i-k and deckers is deck d-e-c-k e-r-s deckers derek has a humor blog at ericdeckers.com and his work blog is at theproblogservice.com, whereby if you're struggling to write a blog, that's a service that Eric and his team can help you with and provide you with content for your website. So you're not sitting there scratching your head, trying to think of content when you'd rather be running your business. You can also find Eric at LinkedIn or on LinkedIn, should I say, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash eric deckers so eric any final words it's been quite a nice long interview actually you've you've said a lot it's been yeah this has been, this has been fun i'm glad i got to do this and uh anybody who's who's afraid of writing or wondering if they should take that first step please take it this has been i mean i've i've been a writer of some form or another for the last 30 years it's been emotionally rewarding it's been a lot of fun it's it's taken me to a lot of places i never would have gone had i not done it and so even if you're afraid take that step because you never know what this is going to bring you excellent so on that note eric decker's my first international podcast person to come on the show which i'm delighted about i want to thank you very much for joining us and Listeners, remember, you can get Derek's books, Branding Yourself, How to Use Social Media to Reinvent Yourself, the third edition, came out in November 2017. Eric also has written the No Bullshit Social Media and the Owned Media Doctrine. So Eric Deckers, look him up, follow him, shout him out, give him a tweet. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for joining me. My name is Lisa Newton. I am the host, your gracious host, remembering who I am there. And thank you very much for joining me today with my special guest, Eric Deckers, first international podcast guest. Delighted to have had him on the show. The president of the Pro Blog Service. Do check him out. And I will see you on the next episode of The Author's Podcast. Thank you. You have been listening to The Author's Podcast with Lisa Newton, sponsored by Boogles Limited. Tweet the show at Boogles underscore books, spelled B-O-O-G-L-E-Z underscore books. You can also contact your host via the email address lisa at lisanewton.co.uk. And if you want to join our author's community, join the inner circle at www.writerbook.net 
You have just been listening to the Authors Podcast with Lisa Newton. See you next time.